All right. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so tonight we're just going to do a brief history of monasticism. And the reason why that is is because we're kind of setting up the scenario for when Martin Luther comes into the scene and has a few words to say about monasticism. But to review from last week, there are, we have a, a few points. One is just this idea of resourcement. Resourcement is kind of the rediscovery and recovery of the past in order to give fresh perspective on the present. And there were a couple examples, Martin Luther being the primary example of that when he recovered justification by faith. So he looked back to the ancient texts, church fathers, and then brought that to the present. And of course, that's, so this is a, like an idea of Reformation. And so we're going to be applying that idea of resourcement to what we study tonight. So each of these kind of monastic movements, and I think we have three, well, four distinct periods where we'll kind of take a part and say, what can we learn from this movement in order then to apply to our present life? But also, too, though, the idea of monasticism we talked about last week was really to kind of educate ourselves because I don't think anybody knew a monk. Does anyone know a monk? In this, there's a few new people. Okay. So, you know, I mean, it's not like we know a lot about this because, you know. <laughs> so we want to define what monasticism is. And monasticism refers to those who intentionally live alone or in community under a rule of life and vows, or otherwise known as promises, that give shape to their daily routine and shared mission in life. If you understand monasticism in that way, that is much more general or ecumenical and more applicable to our daily lives because that can describe a lot of things. In fact, we'll find out through um, uh, Pacomus, who was a soldier before he became a monk. And he applied a lot of the things that he learned in the military to monastic life. So if you've ever been in the military, you've actually practiced aspects of monasticism, whether you knew it or not. So, um, but again, a monk is someone who has single-mindedness. The word monk comes from monasticus, which is mono or alone, one. And the monk has single-mindedness toward God and devotion and contemplation of God. So it's this idea of single-mindedness. Now, one of the things... Uh, what is the greatest enemy of like excellence or perfection? I'm not saying this right. I know that is good, right? The enemy of the best is just good. That's not the phrase, but isn't there? I'm I'm not making this up, right? I've heard this before. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things I think that's applied to. So you know, we can be focused on some good things, but are we actually focused on the best thing? And so this idea of a, a, a monastic is a person who's kind of single-mindedness. 
There is a story that was told one time by a pastor. It's a sermon illustration. I'm sure it's not his. But he, he talks about his child. They're at the beach, and his, his child is uh, you know, collecting shells on the, the shore. And he's got his hands completely full. And they're all beautiful shells, and they're wonderful looking, different shapes, different colors, and different sizes. And he's got his hands full. Well, his parents notice this, the star. Starfish, thank you. I'd like this, this beautiful starfish sitting there. And they're like, hey, pick up the starfish. And this boy is like, he doesn't know what to do. And they're like, you're going you're to miss the starfish. Pick up the starfish. It's, it's right there. And they're like, why are you picking up the starfish? And he's like, well, because I have my hands full. So the thing that's the most beautiful thing sometimes is missed because of all these other good things. And there's kind of an interesting story about like understanding like the one thing in order to live your life around it. So that's the idea of a monk. Now there's different kinds of monks, the ones who live alone, and that's the Anchorites, and then the Cenobics, or Kenobics, and those are the communal ones. And I think the second ones are the ones we kind of envision living, you know, kind of in a monastery and with a special garb. Now the one thing though, last week we spent some time looking at Adam, Abraham, Moses, the Apostle Paul maybe, or maybe I skipped the Apostle Paul. Biblical characters and understanding of their callings in life and how their callings have an active part and a contemplative part. An active part meaning like a life out in the world, like a job perhaps, and then a contemplative part or spiritual life. And we looked at the biblical characters of how their spiritual lives drives their active lives. And that their active lives never get in the way of their spiritual lives. And if they do, usually life suffers. And that was really important because as we look at monasticism, we will understand that the original purposes of this serious sort of life was to live an active life based on their spiritual lives. So even though there's no biblical mandate for monasticism, I cannot find a Bible verse that talks about monasteries or monks. If we take apart the pieces that make a monastic life, we realize that it is biblical, even though there's no biblical verse for it. Because things like communal prayer, poverty, self-denial, these are all things that can be found in the Bible. So that's, that's, that was, that's what we tried to do last week. Now this week we're going to take a look at uh, different movements in uh, monastic life. There is so many interesting things. So if you think that monasticism is very monolithic, you're completely wrong. I mean, there, there's, there are different strands of monastics. There's different reasons why they were started. We're just going to look at some of the few that actually are most influential actually on Lutheranism. <laughs> so, and that are mentioned in our Lutheran confessions. We'll, we'll actually deal with that starting uh, very shortly, but not tonight. So I picked these out. So if you have anything to contribute and you're like, oh, hey, I went to Italy and I learned this, or I went to 
France or Germany or I went to the, the place in Clooney and let's bring it up and talk about it because there's so many well, wonderful the, things. Uh, you know, one of the uh, most common examples of that today would be a Catholic hymn. Okay, yeah, so the monastic life, exactly. So as we see it now, uh, like in terms of the, either a nun, so the nuns are actually probably the most active out in the world. Um, for those who've had any interactions with nuns, in what circumstances did you have interactions with them? Nursing homes. Oh, okay, nursing homes? Great school teachers. And two, it's great teachers. Those are the main two ones, schools and hospitals. Okay, but not in abbeys or cloisters. Or, so this is one of those things that even in our modern context, we have to keep this in mind as we then start to learn about the Reformation and how they understood monastic life because how we see, how, how we've interacted with nuns today are probably different than how Martin Luther interacted with them. So again, because working in schools and working in hospitals is a very active life out in the world. And if you were to ask the average nun, why are you doing this? Well, because I love God. And I love my neighbor. You mean you're not doing it to work your way to heaven? No, what are you talking, what, no. So, um, so that's just something is that we, but we do have to address those critiques of Martin Luther, and we will. But it will be for our benefit today. Again, we're not gonna mainly focus on nuns, nuns because we're not women here, we're thinking about monks because we're men. But we'll learn a lot from them. Okay, so our first... Okay, question. Yeah. So, what about hermits? I mean, obviously the Anchorites, but I've been to a couple of monasteries where there were hermitages where uh, yeah. women lived in this, you know, hut for, you know, name the amount of time. Right. Some for contemplation, some for discipline, some for lots of reasons. So I, I'm curious, did Luther ever talk about that, or did he experience that, or how does that fit in with all of the yeah, right. No, no. So, so, so hermits. Okay, so hermit. So St. Anthony, the Anchorite, is a hermit. He went to go live by himself. What John was talking about was at a monastery having a separate building for, called a, a hermitage. That's right. Now, so... Depending on the situation, so like for instance, there is a, a monastery up just north of Milwaukee in Hubertus called, what well, they call it Holy Hill. And Holy Hill is a Cistercian monastery. The barefoot monks, Descalcified de Carmelites. Barefoot, barefoot Carmelites. And on that property, so they have, a, they have a monastery that's separate from the main church. They also have a retreat center. I've been there. It's like a, like a hotel. And, well, a basic hotel. They have their own separate living quarters. And then separate from that is they have these little, they call them hermitages. So they're like a, you know, eight by six little house. 
and they're kind of, so Holy Hill's on a hill, and around it, I think they have three of them, and they're kind of on the side of the hill. And if you're me, you go for a hike, because you're not supposed to go by them, but I got, I got lost. And uh, I, went, I, went up to, I went up and looked at them. Uh, there was a guy in there, so that was weird, but he was praying. I mean, he was just sitting there reading, I think. I, I didn't look too long. I just was like, oh, and then walked away. From my understanding, like at Holy Hill, that was for spiritual retreat. So spiritual, spiritual, like spiritual discipline. But John had already said it. So you do it for like spiritual retreat. You might do it as a, you did something you weren't supposed to do with the brothers. And so it is like exclusive, like exclusionary, sort of like a penance. Those are the only two reasons why, except for those who intentionally do it, which are like the um, Carthusians, which are, in, they were started in France. In 2005, there was a movie called In the Great Silence, and won an Academy Award documentary. It's about these monks. They're, they're, they're the silent monks. They actually, they live, to, they live alone together. Does that make any sense? So they all have their cells, and they, the only thing they do together is go to prayer, but they eat in their cells, they pray in their cells, they kind of live in their, when I say cell, I mean their little dorm room. So that's another aspect of, and at that place they also have her, like, like a hermit, hermitage, but that's strictly for spiritual retreat. But we'll talk about it. So, so St. Anthony, way back when, he's, he's the guy that we're going to take a look at. He's Egyptian. He withdrew. And he, redrew, he withdrew because of this great desire for single-mindedness. He wanted to focus on love of God and love our neighbor. Now, there's spiritual, there's biblical foundations for this. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. And St. Anthony mentions these. This is why we're bringing them up. He starts with Jesus's going out into the wilderness to be tempted by the 40 days in the wilderness. Well, that's true. That's not real helpful for us. So, so, he, so he starts with the temptations of Jesus and how Jesus went out into the wilderness to be refined or, or, or to be tested. And, of course, Jesus was found to be true. Son of God. But if you take a look at the Gospel of Mark, after the temptations, Jesus begins his ministry. Mark chapter 1, by the way. I, I can't remember if I said that. So there is like a progression in, in the Gospel of Mark. He's baptized. He's tempted. He begins his preaching. He calls his disciples. So he's, he's starting kind of gathering. After he gathers his disciples, he begins his healing ministry. After the healing ministry... He begins to preach in Galilee. So, Mark 1, 35. But in order to preach, listen to what he does. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and said, hey, everyone's looking for you. 
And Jesus said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Now the word for came out is kind of an interesting thing. Does anyone want to, like, what do, what do you guys think that means? There's multiple meanings. I just want to see which one of you guys are decided first. The reason why I came out. Came out from where? He started to demonstrate that he was the son of God. Okay. I'm thinking more uh, locatedness. Where did he come out from? Nazareth. Yo. Okay, so Galilee, yep, came out of Galilee, boom. So now he's heading out towards wider Israel. Yep, that's true. What's one of the more obvious places? Heaven. That's right, he came down from heaven out, and so he kind of came out, so he, you know, out of the eternal trinity, comes to earth to preach. But then the last one is he came out of his desolate place. He came out of prayer in order to preach. So you have this idea of withdrawing and then re-engaging. And if we had enough time, the Gospel of Luke actually is the one that has a lot of these examples where Jesus is always leaving to go pray and then coming back, going off by himself, pray. St. Anthony is very similar insofar as he would retreat into the desert to pray, to meditate, to learn God's word. And while he tried to do that in order to re-engage the world, he could actually never re-engage the world because they kept coming out to him, like Simon and the other disciples. He would go, people would come out and say, hey, Anthony, uh, and then seek spiritual direction from him. He would then re-engage, though. He would come out of his desolate place, and he would often go to cities and fight, well, I think I wrote fight the pagans. I don't know if that's like politically correct, but yes, he would then engage, because uh, back, in, back in the 300s, there was a huge fight between uh, various sects and heretics. He, he was uh, a big proponent of orthodoxy, like true Christianity. So, but that marks of that life of withdrawing, entering, was prayer. Now, asceticism. Asceticism is a big fancy word for like becoming a real serious disciplined life in order to develop virtue. Has anyone ever heard of David Gog Coggins? Goggins? How do you say his last name? Goggins, right? With a G? He's an aesthetic, whether he, whether he knows it or not. He was this very disciplined life very, you know, organized, very, like, boom. So that, that is, now, the reason why St. Anthony was doing it is because he had a very, very serious yes to God's calling, so he said no to a lot of other things. And in this circumstances, he would say no to food, some food, so he practiced fasting, uh, no to, uh, he was celibate, so no to marriage, he said no to uh, sleep, oftentimes. And, and so, but, but it was based on a yes already. So this is really important for us, too, is we have to understand that any sort of understanding of self-denial from a Christian perspective can only come from a serious yes to something. You say no to something because you've already said yes to this. I mean, that's real simple. But maybe we don't often think about this. And the reason why this was is because um, 
St. Anthony would fight with the devil and demons, usually through prayer, in prayer or people like demons would visit him. He has all these stories of fighting off demons. Now, again, this, these are his stories and people have asked, yeah, is that true? Well, I don't know why it went to be true. Sure. But again, that is mimicking then what happened in the desert with Jesus. So the life of Jesus is now kind of forming the life of Anthony. And then, but what's really interesting about him, he didn't go out into the desert to really exclude himself from everybody. So it wasn't a renunciation of the world, but it was an equipping of himself to engage the world. So he would actually then work with his hands. And his main reason why he would work with his hands is, of course, just to sustain himself, but also help, help others. You talk about helping the poor, mainly. All right, so that's St. Anthony. This idea of, so we get this idea of withdrawal and re-engagement. Withdrawal, re-engagement. Now, the next guy, it depends on how you want to say Pacho or Paco, Paco Minius. He's also Egyptian, and he knew St. Anthony. But he came out to St. Anthony. He was one of these guys like Simon and the other disciples who searched for St. Anthony and found him and started living with him. But he was a former soldier who was loved by Christians out in the battlefield and then became a Christian. And this love that he experienced from these Christians changed his life so radically that he needed to then to center his life around that same love. And of course, if he was in Egypt, where do I learn that? We'll check the old guy out in the desert. So he goes and seeks St. Anthony. But what's interesting about him is that even though St. Anthony had this very disciplined life, he didn't have a, like a rule or a formal, like, hey, how do you live? St. Anthony would be like, well, you have to come and watch me. Like he wouldn't be able to say, well, this is, these are the things I live by. But Pacominius did. And he used his military experience then to create this rule. And this rule had some parts to it. One is med meditation and prayer. And then another thing that he was really get to, he was known for is reciting scripture. So no one could actually enter into his rule without learning 20 psalms and two of the epistles. Those were like requirements or initiation into, just to start. But he has all these different things where eventually people started living around him. And there got to be too many people. And then he created, he started to begin to create what we would know as a monastery, where people then would start creating these rules. I mean, I'm living under this rule of meditation and prayer, scripture recitation, but it was garnered by daily church services, asceticism, like St. Anthony, and working with the poor. But again, for for him, it was now we're getting these, we're starting to get a more formal understanding of how to live a Christian life out in the way of sort of like a serious way of prayer. Now again, the next guy, so all these guys are around the 300s and early 400s. And John Cassian 
is now finally the guy who kind of brings us all together and starts writing things because there is about 50 years of experience now to learn from how people live together as we pray together, as we worship together, as we recite scripture together. And he now starts to write these two things, the institutes and the conferences. And one of them is sort of like a how-to manual and the other one is why we do this. So one is kind of practical and one's theological. But his big thing was, is based on Matthew 5, 8. And this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, we, why don't we turn to Matthew 5, 8. I have it quoted right there, but I, I want to show something related to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll, we'll probably bring this up a little bit later. But if we don't understand the Sermon on the Mount... The Sermon on the Mount is a rule of life. This describes a way of living. Now again, you could understand it as a prescription or a description. And having that distinction is very helpful for us because a prescription can be understood in a way that kind of is imposed upon us. But a description is meant to describe something that is coming out of us or in us already. So it is a sort of a law gospel way of understanding the Sermon on the Mount. If you understand the Sermon on the Mount as a prescription, as something like you must do, then that might become, that, that is under the law, and that could easily go into works righteousness. However, if you understand the Sermon on the Mount as a description of who you are made in Christ, we understand that what is described in the Sermon on the Mount is not foreign to us, but is actually meant for us. And so when we practice the Sermon on the Mount, it might be hard, it might be a struggle, but at the end of the day, you know, when we're tired from trying to do this, we say, this is what I meant for. Sports analogy. I grew up loving basketball. I still love basketball. As much as I, I pretend I don't, Avery, I, I do love playing basketball. And as a kid, when I was 13, it's a long story, but there was an old man chemistry teacher from Lakeland High School in Minocqua, Wisconsin, who I met, who grew up in Milwaukee and played at the University of Wisconsin. And he told me about like how him and this other guy would go every day, go down to the playground, they would have their lunch money, they would play, they would practice together, they'd go to the diner across the street from the park, eat their food, then play the rest of the afternoon and come home for dinner. And that was the template for me. It's like, oh, I finally know how to do this now. And that whole week of Lakeland basketball camp when I was in middle school was just life-changing for me because it gave me a description of what I wanted to do all along. It wasn't a prescription. It was a description that I had been missing in my life. So I get home. The next week, I get a duffel. I make... <laughs> I remember waking up, and by the time Good Morning America came on, 
in the morning, I, I had to be out of the house. That was like my mental, oh, good morning, America, gotta go. But I would make cream cheese sandwiches. Take a piece of bread, just put cream cheese on it, and put another piece of bread, and that's what I would take with me for my lunch, along with probably some apples and some snacks or something. I just remember making those things. Go down to the playground, practice, eat my lunch, go to the afternoon, and then be back for dinner time. And I just started doing that. Was it hard for me to do that? Absolutely. Did I do it every day? Unfortunately not. However, it was a very disciplined life, but it wasn't based on something I didn't want to do. I wanted to do that. I wanted to be that way. It was coming from within that was driving me to do this. It was a description of the way I wanted to be. So, John Cashian, when he writes about so he talks about the eight principal vices. You might have heard of the seven deadly sins, but St. Gregory the Great came up with these categories of seven deadly sins, but before this, John Cashian had the, kind of the eight vices. When he talks about overcoming them, you could say that is, oh, that's, that's too hard for me, and I don't want to do that. Or you could say, actually, I, I, I don't want to do those. I want to live differently. I want to live the opposite of way. And even though that's hard to do, and you might not do it every day, at the end of the day, through all the effort and the struggle and the blood, sweat, and tears, you say, oh, today was a good day. Because I'm doing what I wanted to do, even though it was hard. And so he gives sort of like this, like this, like these things that are happening out, you know, in the Egyptian deserts with St. Anthony and, and, and Pacomius and now he's writing it down, he's, it's, becoming, it's, it's becoming easier for people to really understand. And it's really based on the Sermon on the Mount, but specifically verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And, and so this is something about pursuing the one thing. That one thing that is going to... So pursuing what, what they would call the vision of God. And he had to live this life. So these three guys are coming along. And so now we're going to, do, kind, of, we're going to kind of pull away from this. And what, what did we learn? So saying no because you've already said yes. You need to create space in your life in order to seek God's kingdom. Which might mean then you have a notion of spiritual retreat. You might need to create that space in order to get into it, to prepare yourself, then to re-engage into society, to live for the love of God and your neighbor. This is what we're seeing in this early monastic life. All right. St. Benedict. Yeah. I, uh, about the first three, um, something I'd always been taught is kind of important to understanding them is they're building this up right after, well, mostly before, but yeah. the others after Edict of Milan and Christians are no longer being persecuted. So. Yeah. Well, what's the Edict of Milan? Uh, it was an Edict of Tolerance by the Emperor Constantine. What did it allow? What did it allow? Christianity was made a legal religion. Right. Amongst others, but yep. mostly And so people are kind of, the two categories of people, are, people are looking Okay, well, I'm not going to be killed for being a Christian anymore. You know, what's 
what's the thing I do to prove to myself that I'm the real deal? And for a lot of them, the next step was monasticism. And okay, now hang on. You're right. Just kind of back up a little bit. So what was it before the Edict of Milan? What was kind of the, uh, like, a, a, like a person, what was understood as like the, where did the rubber meet the road when it came to Christian life before that? Legal persecution. <laughs> Otherwise known as? Martyrdom. Yeah, I just want to make sure. Dying. That's basically it, dying. How did you know you were a Christian? Well, you died. There's, there's so. about the, the people who were kind of on death's row yeah. Christians, people would come to like their jail cells to confess their sins to them because like if you're gonna confess your sins to somebody, it's like why not the guy who's about to die for Jesus? Yeah. Um, and so when when that's no longer happening, it's like, well, nobody's dying anymore, but this Antony guy mm -hmm. in the desert, that's pretty legit. So That's right. So they're striving for purity for holiness. And again, this is something where we have to really understand is that they're, they're, th this is not like they're not working their way to heaven. This is a genuine desire to get closer to God. And before the Edict of Milan, the way you got close to Jesus was by dying like Jesus. I mean, this is a genuine thing that was happening in all the very facets of the Roman Empire. So, yeah, so thank you very much for saying that. This is exactly right. So now that the, it becomes tolerant, and you won't be, you, you're not going to go to jail for being a Christian, how do we live our life seriously for God? It's, it's a great question. I mean, it's kind of easy when it's illegal. How do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I go to church. Well, why is that such a serious thing? Well, you might go to jail for it, for going to church. I mean, I don't... How many people think about that one on Sunday morning, right? I'm going to go to church. Yeah, I mean, you don't think about that, right? So this is something, too, where <laughs> this is a larger issue that we, were going to talk, we will talk about, especially as we talk about it in, in relation to Dirk Bonhoeffer and his views on monasticism, is how monasticism can really confront how we have culturally uh, made concessions to our Christian life. We just kind of do things culturally and we don't even think about how that actually is maybe not the best for us as Christians. Where before Constantine wrote the Edict of Milan, it was really generally, hey, you're going to go to church and you might die for going to church. Now we have to kind of think about like, oh, well, maybe I won't have three cars, you know, or we have to like live a different way. We have to like seriously consider like how our, you know, our, our financial life is, is, is centered around Jesus or our relationships or, you know, right. Anyways, we're not going to get to that right now, but Avery's already laying it down, but Eli's in there. All right. But okay. So rule of Benedict, rule of Benedict, ben this is now the... Um, this is really the thing that we all think about when we think of monastic life. Uh, there's other rules now before the rule of Benedict. Uh, the, uh, the rule of Basil, rule of Augustine, and the rule of the Master. So what is a rule? A rule is an ordered way for someone to live the Christian life, commanded by Scripture, 
Love God, love your neighbor. I'm sorry, the content of the rule of life is not always the same, though, other than what is commanded in Scripture. A rule of life is dynamic. It reflects the reality of how one chooses, under the guidance of God, to live out his Christian life. A rule should be flexible to adjust, but firm enough to require obedience. Meaning, our life must look like something if we are followers of Jesus. So if you lived in the military, you already lived by a rule. Are there rules in the Bible? Sermon on the Mount. There's also rules in the Old Testament. And when I say rules, I don't mean... When I I say rule, I mean like ruler. Something to measure with. Not, you know, your second grade teacher saying, here are the rules of the class. Okay, I use use the word rule in a more general way. But Exodus chapter 20 through 30 is a rule. Ancient Israel. God said, hey, you're going to live like this, which is different than the other people around you. That's very important for us because to acknowledge that even in the Old Testament, God said, you're living around all these other cults, the Canaanites, the Edomites. They all have their worship life. They have their way they handle their families how they handle their property, how they handle the stranger, the foreigner, their families, marriages. And God said, you're different. This is how you will live. So when we read Exodus, we're not going to do that tonight, but Exodus 20 through 30, when God talks about the altars and the tabernacle, we don't really understand this, but it's radically different than how other people worshipped around them. Then on top of that, because we worship this particular way, You're going to handle your families differently. You're going to handle the foreigner differently. And of course, back then, the slave differently. And you're going to handle restitution differently. All these things are different. So this is not some weird thing to have the rule of a life. It's just that when it came to the monasteries, they wrote everything down and they had a very specific. And then they said, hey, we're going to live this way. We're not going to live that way. We're going to live this way. So we're to Benedict, St. Benedict of Nursia is central Italy, and he wrote this rule, and it's 73 chapters. I forgot to, it's, it's a book about this thick. It's not very thick. And there's basically kind of two, two sections, kind of um, job descriptions, the role of the abbot, the role of, you know, the guy who takes care of the food and the guy who takes care of the bedding, you know, just kind of job description, like I said, job descriptions. And then you have all the, like the, the relationship things. And I wrote them down. Tools of good, work, uh, good works, personal behavior, virtues and discipline, prayer and hospitality. And it gets really detailed. And you're like, whoa, this is like really detailed. This is not how I would live my life. That's okay. But when you want to live in a community, he's trying then to create this environment where the, he, he even says the rule of life is just the beginning, but Scripture is the way and source of life itself. So the rule is created not to restrict you, but to keep you singly-minded, focused on what God says. How many people get distracted in their life? Anybody get distracted? David, you get distracted. Uh, have you ever gotten distracted when you're trying to read your Bible? Yes, actually more than other times, I would say. Okay. 
Have you gotten so distracted like you didn't read your Bible one day? Yeah. Okay. I'm not putting you on the spot because everyone else should be nodding along. Okay. Do you feel good about not reading the Bible? No. Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't you love it to have someone help you read your Bible every day? <laughs> All right, so when you start breaking it down and you're talking about it this way, the rule makes complete sense. And you're like, oh, wait, that's actually something I want in my life. If I could only be with a group of men who might make promises to one another to read their Bibles every day, wouldn't that be a great place? Could we, could we have that here, you think? Well, of course we could. It's maybe something we should do. We should think about this. Maybe we will. Okay. But this is the rule of Benedict. Now, again, if you were to read that, you would be like, whoa, 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 obedience to the abbot, which means, so the abbot comes from the word Abba, father. It's a, it's a daddy word. And the word abbot, I'm sorry, so the position of abbot is kind of this ruler, ruler of, of the monastery. And I'm not highlighting that part of the rule of Benedict, but you have three things. Poverty, celibacy or chastity, and obedience. And all these are really created to help live a disciplined life. So we live a disciplined life on the virtues of humility, obedience, and hospitality. So one of the other things, too, about the rule of Benedict is being hospitable to the guest. So that's a whole thing about the rule of Benedict that we don't often think about. We only think about praying the hours and obeying the abbot. There's a whole section on welcoming people into the presence and loving them the way Jesus did. So the resourcement, I wrote, seeing Christ in others, is one of the interesting things about that rule. We're going to move on to the Cistercians because we're going to end here in a little bit. The Cistercians, the reason why I bring the Okay, so, so St. Benedict is really important just for the foundation of all different monasteries. Now we're getting into these parts that really have to do with Martin Luther. The Cistercians, no monk had more influence on uh, Martin Luther than Bernard de Clairvaux. Bernard de Clairvaux was highly influential in Luther's understanding of justification by of faith alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. So Bernard de Clairvaux is somebody that we really uh, need to, to make a note of. Because at this time, there were monasteries growing. So, so we kind of jumped ahead several, about 500 years, to France and 1100. And through those 500 years, monasteries had started to gather property not just church buildings, but winery or vineyards or mills, like for grain production. And people would donate that because originally the idea was, hey, we're going to give the vineyard so that they can work the vineyard and provide for themselves and, you know, live to, to give to other people. But eventually <laughs> greed comes in and changes it, and now all of a sudden they start accumulating all this land and this basically power and money. Bernard de Clairvaux says, no more. We're going to go back to this rule because we are losing sight of Christ, and we need to get back to having Christ focus number one. 
And so they didn't own churches or altars beyond what was needed by the monastery. Uh, they actually rejected tithes. So if someone said, hey, I want to give you my vineyard, you know, as a, and again, now there's a whole spirituality that needed to be reformed, and this is what Bernard is doing, is that some would say, oh, I'm going to give my vineyard to the local monastery. Well, they already have a vineyard. They don't need another vineyard, but they, they would take it. Now with Bernard of Clairvaux, that never happens anymore. In fact, they would give the money away because he actually he writes on there are four reasons for tithes the bishop parish priest the poor and repair of the church now the bishop you, you think about it an individual person but it's the diocese so you give your tithe goes to the bishop which helps out the whole diocese because part of that will go to the parish priest part of that will go to helping the poor feeding the hungry and then part of it will help with keeping, you know, maintaining the church building. That sounds very similar to what we do, right? I mean, that's what we do here. So already, this is laying the foundation because things were different back then. Also, too, Cistercians work. Now, that's kind of the practical side of things. Now there's spiritual renewal, and now we are studying the form of the seven times of daily prayer, uh, the manual labor and divine reading. This is the thing that I really want to stress is now the divine reading, the slow meditative reading of scripture. Bernard of Clairvaux says the only way we're going to renew ourselves is to get back to scripture, and we have to get back to scripture in order to, uh, the only way to get back to scripture is to take it very slowly. How did Martin Luther understand reading the Bible? Chewing the cud, right? All, all of Martin Luther's understanding of chewing the cud Finding yourself in scripture comes right out of Bernard Clairvaux and the renewal of the monastery, the Cistercian monasteries. All right, the Carthusians, Cologne, I already talked about the, the, the Charter House. It's, a, it's, still, it's still in existence, this original one from the, the 1100s. It's on the side of a mountain. It's beautiful. They're the ones who now have gone away. So they're trying to reincorporate St. Anthony back into the life of the Christian. So they live alone together. But the big thing for them is silence and fasting. And so now this rise of asceticism coming into it. We're not going to spend any much time. What I want to get to is Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. So if you want to Flip it over. These three movements of the, the rule of Benedict, Cistercians, Carthusians, really is found now in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans has a lot of great theology in the beginning. Then it has a practical section related to Christian life. And then now it is application also here at the end. So, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, you are giving yourself to God. Now, hmm. the only way you can give yourself to God is because God has already given yourself back to you. Sounds a little strange. But you can't give anything that you don't have. So, you have to understand that God gives you yourself. How, when does he do that? In holy baptism. In holy baptism, and that would be from Romans chapter 6, 
doing a really quick thing with Romans. So God gives you yourself back, free from, you know, forgives you your sins, gives you the Holy Spirit, and now with this life that you've been given, you are meant to live sacrificially for the other. So that's what it means. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You can only do that not on your own effort, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, because God has given yourself back to yourself. Because when you sin, there's a rupture inside of you. Everyone has felt that before, this discontentness in you or this uncertainty inside of you. When God saves you, he puts that back together. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in these Rule of Benedict, Cistercians, Carthusians, you have this whole understanding of kind of testing yourself to learn what the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You're presenting yourself, you're kind of countercultural. You're one of spiritual renewal. And what we find out in the history of monasticism is that you'll, there'll be ebbs and flows. You'll find some people who like, hey, it's really nice to have a lot of great food and a lot of great land and a lot of great buildings and a lot of great notoriety and a lot of great power. But that takes you away from Jesus. So you have to have this spiritual renewal that has happened in these three different movements to bring you back to Jesus. So we see this, this ebb and flow. Now, we're not going to read First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 4 because we've got to keep moving. But again, we come into the, now this, again, another idea of spiritual retreat. We move back in order back then to engage. The last group is called the Friars. And these are the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Um, this is now where things sort of get rough. You, you, you'll, insofar as Luther. Because remember, was Luther a friar or a monk? He was a friar. Which means he begged. He was a Benedictine or a friar, so he had to beg for alms. And when it came to Luther, that was a sign of holiness by begging and living off of other people, otherwise known as mooching, going around mooching off of people. Uh, that was not, that's, but that is different than even some of these other monastic lives, okay? But the origins of these are really interesting because they said, we're not going to take any tithes, we're not going to take any money from anybody. And the reason why this was coming about is before the Franciscans came, one of the, the chief sins was chief of pride. But now we had a money economy growing at this time in Western Europe. That's the kind of economy we have now. But before that, it was barter economy. You traded goods and services. But now, in this time, as the economy is growing through the money economy, people were amassing wealth, coins, gold. And now that became a very huge issue for Christians. St. Francis, we'll do him first, even though he's second, was from a rich family. And he decided to give it all away. Beautiful, really uh, amazing conversion experience. 
you know, where the crucifix talks to him and says, rebuild my church. He actually literally starts rebuilding the building that it was in, and then he realizes, wait a second, this is that, he's, I think Jesus is talking about the whole kit and caboodle. And he, he actually, he, so he converges to the material and immaterial poverty. So not only his money, but also his uh, spiritual poverty. I have nothing, Lord. You have everything. So a sign of uh, repentance. Then to unconditional love. There's a wonderful story of how he's, he, when he was wealthy, he avoided the lepers, stayed away from the sick and poor. And then when he gave all his money away, he was driven. And there's this beautiful story of how he embraces this leper and kisses him. And, and you know, he obviously doesn't catch leprosy. But he's, he's moved by this. And so, again, the poverty, the love, and then finally, he, one day in church, the, the gospel reading is where Jesus says, don't take a staff, don't take your shoes, don't, you know, let, don't take a tunic, and he actually lets all that stuff go. And so he, he's kind of talking about imitation of Christ. These are all really important. So um, it's kind of a renewal of life. That's the life side of things. The Dominicans, Spanish guy, his whole thing is preaching. The Dominicans are, eventually will come into the first order of preachers in 1217, where they had this special calling to go and preach. And the reason why this came about was because they confronted these heretics that were dualistic. Did I put that in here? Uh, no. So uh, they're, they're dualistic where... Um, Material, bad, spiritual, good. Oh, yeah, I did right there. Yeah, oh, yeah, right, the Cathars. Okay, great, excellent. There's a great story. Dominic is, is, is going with this local bishop to go to Denmark to do a royal wedding. On the way, they meet these heretics. He preaches, he converts them, and it's just this life-changing experience for him because he sees the power of the Holy Gospel in, in a heretic life to go from heresy to, to back to, to Orthodox Christianity. Changes them. He can't believe it. Uh, and so he, he has to go back to Denmark again, and he runs into the same people, and they want him to stay, they want him to preach, and it's like a snowball. And he ends up getting uh, some more preachers to come with him. They end up studying at the University of Paris, University of Bologna, in Oxford, and this is a, a whole movement of preachers, but the main emphasis on the cure of soul, the, the cure of souls, or the care of souls, the German word is the Zielsorger. So they have a bare pastoral heart, emphasis on preaching. Okay, why did I bring them up? Who else has an emphasis on preaching in the 1500s? Luther. So Dominic is mentioned very positively in these. So all these things are happening. But as we think about all these, so the Dominicans and the Franciscans, we have to understand that Luther also was a big proponent of um, letting go of material goods. Freeing yourself of material things in order to do loving others. Free to follow Jesus. And we have all these questions now that we need to really understand as we kind of apply these new lessons to our life. We're, we're going to keep moving that along. We'll answer those questions some other time because we 
need to go pray. All right, so hopefully we've kind of whet the appetite. Our next time that we meet, next week, we will not have Bible study. We're going to take a quick one-week break and then come right back, and we're going to start now then applying the Reformation of the monastery with Luther, uh, Luther understanding of monasteries. Okay, let's go downstairs and let's pray.